Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to worship thee uh, in spirit and in truth. We pray, Father, that you will give us of your Holy Spirit and guide us as we study about these important principles that Jesus has shared with us. We pray that the Spirit will give us discernment and wisdom. And above everything else, Father, we pray that the love of Jesus may dwell in our hearts more so today than any day since. And uh, it will grow each and every day that we may love people as Jesus loves us and uh, that we may be obedient. And, and we love Jesus. We don't want to sin against him anymore. So we pray for the strength to do that. Please, Lord, forgive us our sins. We claim the blood that Jesus shed uh, for us. And uh, pray that what we think and say and do, especially on this most holy day, will bring glory to thy name. Please be with those on our prayer list. Be with those who couldn't be with us this morning. Uh, and be with those who may be traveling to houses of praise. We pray that you will give them travel mercies. Be with our friends and loved ones and family as well. May we be a light to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Um, in part two of this particular part of the study that... Um, give me a second here. I'm trying to fix something. There we go. had a problem here. Let's see. Okay, there we go. Uh, this particular part of the series, of course, that I entitled The Sin Issue, uh, this is part three uh, of the message um, What about sin in the church? In part two, we began looking at the biblical principle uh, we are to use when someone trespasses against us uh, personally. You know, and not necessarily in public, though it could, you know, be something that, that was done in public. Uh, if you recall, we looked at what Jesus commanded us uh, to do in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 18. And so I want to quickly review that for a few moments before we continue uh, with this particular study. So let's go to Matthew 18. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 18 again. Remember now, this is Jesus who is speaking to us here. And he says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as and he the man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, uh -oh. <clears throat> Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
why am I losing the microphone? Okay, Pal Talk's given us some fun this morning, isn't it? So let's look at Matthew 18 again. I don't know where I, I lost you all, but verses 15 to 18. Let's go to verse 18. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so when we were together last time we in part two, we defined some terms that were found in these verses. Because, and the reason I like, you know, it sounds so simple, but the reason I like to define the terms is because I've run into a lot of people, it's my experience, that people have their own definitions of the same word. <laughs> and so we want to make it clear uh, what these certain words mean. And a lot of times, to clear that up, you have to go back to the original languages, which in this case would be the Greek. And so, Jesus says in here, in these verses, that this is between you and thy brother, he said. And the Greek word for brother is adelphos. And it can mean several types of close associations, depending upon how it's used in the context. And uh, uh, in the context here, uh, several Bible scholars say, and when you look in your lexicon and you do your Strong's concordance and look through the definitions, uh, Adam Clark, for one, he says it means any who is a member of the same religious society. So in this context, is talking. Jesus is speaking specifically about members of the church. And so he's laying out for us um, how to deal when there are trespasses between church brethren and not between believers and unbelievers per se. It's mainly geared at those of, of the household of faith. And though I, I would encourage, and always would encourage, uh, in fact, when you have the love of Jesus in your heart, you want to make things right between you and someone else if there's you know, a conflict. Uh, and so you always try to do that. But we need to have the understanding that the church has no authority in the matter with people who are unbelievers. But it may be that because of your efforts, you may actually bring someone to know Christ, you know, by trying to work them out. They'll, at least in a worldly perspective, they will see that you are someone with integrity, someone who wants to be at peace with his neighbors. Uh, the word trespass there means to miss the mark, to err, be mistaken. Now, this is out of Strong's Concordancy. It uh, means to wander from the law of God, violate God's law, sin, offend. And, and it's, it's an all-encompassing word. So again, you've got to understand what the context uh, uh, of how it's being used. You need to know what the context is. Remember when we looked at defining sin, and we found that there were three categories to sin. Do you remember that? There were trespasses, there were sin, and then there was iniquity. Well, most all trespasses, most all, are done ignorantly. But this particular Greek word entails more than an ignorant sin, though it could be done ignorantly. Okay, So it's a little bit stronger in the Greek here, in this particular context. Now, I don't want to leave the impression uh, that trespass in this instance only refers to sin done in ignorance. Okay? as the context really plainly points out. 
Okay? I don't want to leave the impression, uh, that impression. Some people say, well, you just go to somebody who has been sinning against you in ignorance. No, it, it entails a bit more than that. Now, the word tell means to convict, to refute, to confute, to call to account, uh, to show someone their fault, uh, or in a stronger sense, to demand an explanation, you know, for what they're doing. And the word here means, of course, to consider what is or has been said. Now, knowing these definitions, I want to go back and read uh, Matthew 18, verse 15 again, and it, it really clears it up, I think. So there, there should be no questions. Uh, moreover, if a church member or believer shall sin or offend thee, you know, ignorantly or not, go and call to account his fault between thee and him alone, if he shall consider what is or has been said to us gain thy brother. And so you see, this is this I think helps us to understand a little bit better that what Christ is talking about here is a reconciliation process to make things right. It's righteous to make things right, do the right thing. And of course, you know, when you start out, it's to be a private matter between the two people. Or it might even be, you know, maybe three people or maybe a small group. It needs to be done there first. So we don't want to circulate reports about what the person has done to you um, because it will make it more difficult, perhaps sometimes even impossible, to reach that person make things right between the two of you if, you know, you're out there gossiping around and telling them, you know, your side. Now, I've seen it happen uh, over and over and over. This first step has been abused so many times, and, and because of that, there was no reconciliation at all, and it turned out to be a parting of the ways between the people. And, uh, of course, the devil loves that, doesn't he? Now, what happens if the person rejects your appeal? What if he doesn't want to hear you at all? Or hears what you have to say and then rejects it, and he, he won't repent or make things right? And we look at the next verse, Matthew eighteen sixteen. Jesus said, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This shows that you're, you're serious. They may slough you off the first time, say, and it may be because of personalities or something, you know, uh, or whatever reason. But if you take two or three with you... Um, they, it shows the seriousness of it, and and uh, it may make them want to listen. See, so the other thing we looked at too was the one or two more are to be those whom this particular person uh, may trust. They may esteem them. They may okay. I might not listen to you, but I'll listen to these two. Well, now they go to listen. They you know to to listen between the two brethren as witnesses see so they got to be credible witnesses remember uh, no one was to be condemned except on the the uh, testimony of two or three credible witnesses and that's uh, was hebrew law now, these people might be in a better position to express an unbiased opinion you see and to counsel that uh, particular offending uh, person and let's always remember, you know, you've heard it before, there are two sides to every disagreement, right? 
and both must have a fair hearing before a decision can be reached. I've learned that you know there's one side of the the you know a person has their ideas of what happened, the other person has their ideas, and the truth is somewhere in the middle <laughs> most of the time. So, uh, but everybody they, it needs to have the uh, uh, the person needs to be convinced that they're getting a fair hearing. And, of course, God is just and fair, isn't he? So this is what Jesus is saying. We need to be just and fair as well. We need to be like Christ. So um, there needs to be fair play in this process. If there isn't, the reaction is is that they're not just not going to listen to you, and they're probably not going to change their ways and make things right. Now, what happens if the person continues to reject counsel now? Jesus said in verse 17, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Well, definitions again. That word neglect means to refuse to hear, to pay no regard to, to disobey. Now, to disobey, when he says neglect, that means to disobey God and God's righteous principles here. Not necessarily disobey the people, see. Because ultimately, when you sin, you may sin against another person, but ultimately it's against God, isn't it? Now, the word church means an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. And so, uh, uh, the Lord is telling us, if they don't listen to the church, which is the organized, recognized body of Christ uh, on earth, then... They need to be um, treated as a heathen or a publican. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in that process of giving it to the church, we need to remember that the process starts at the local level, you know, where believers act in their corporate capacity at the local level as a body of believers. So if a person refuses to hear you and the witnesses, you're to tell it all to the local church body in a business session. And the responsibility of reconciliation then uh, is passed from you to the body of believers as a whole. Again, at the local level first. It's now up to the church then, see, to speak to the person through chosen leadership. They may listen to the church then, because it's evident they're not listening to you. And they're not listening to witnesses. But when the church gets involved, they may listen to the church then, see. And so now it's up to the church to speak to that person through, you know, chosen uh, leadership or, or people, members that are filled with the Holy Ghost, you see. The people that are esteemed by this particular person, that person will trust them. They trust their judgment. They trust their fairness and love. See, And, and then the, these people will report back to the church and then the matter is judged in a righteous manner and a decision made. Now remember Jesus said if the person refuses to consider what the church says, they're to be treated as a heathen and a publican. And I think if you remember last time I said a lot of people don't understand what that means. They think, oh, they almost take they almost take the position that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. You recall? Well, that person won't listen to me. They won't listen to witnesses. They won't listen to the church. We're to treat them worse than dogs. And that's not the case. Far from the case. 
just what does it mean to treat them, let them be to thee as a heathen man and a publican. Well, the word heathen means someone who is alien to the worship of the true God. It basically means someone who's unconverted, like a pagan or a Gentile. The word publican, of course, meant tax gatherer, collector of taxes or tolls. Now, the reason that Jesus added that, some people have asked me that. Why would he say, why wouldn't he just say as a heathen man? Why does he say as a heathen man and a publican? Well, I will tell you why. <laughs> First of all, the person is to be treated as an unbeliever. That's the heathen. And the publican is, you're not to associate with them as if they're your buddy. The Jews did not associate with publicans, the tax collectors. They were not very esteemed among the Jews. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, not only are you to treat them as an unconverted person, but they're not supposed to be your buddy-buddy. You don't go, you know, fishing with them. You don't go to lunch with them, you know. You don't do those things. That's why you see those two references there, those two words that are, are said there by the Lord. And so uh, what happens after that? They rejected that. The person's then removed from church membership. Now, it doesn't end there, see, because the church has responsibilities still. They need to, to pass that information along to all the other churches, usually by official letter and usually sent to the clerk of each church, and then the clerk lets it known, be known to the, the leaders of the church. And the reason for this, friends, is to keep unity among the churches. Let me see if I can give you an example, a very easy example. The church, let's say the church is a body. It's described as a body, right? Let's say it's a physical body. And so you, you have an infection, and that infection has been removed, and let's say that infection is a disease. Well, that disease runs over to another member of the church body, another physical body, and wants to become a member in that body. Well, you need to inoculate the church from that disease, you see. And so um, it needs to be shared with, the, with all the other churches. And this is where we have failed as a people for years and years and years. Um, I've witnessed the failure of this particular step by local churches, I mean, many times. And I, I've even seen other churches of the same denomination, other churches take sides with the offender and against the local church that disfellowship the member. And I'll tell you, Satan rejoices at these things. He rejoices. And it's just, it's so sad. Um, now, again, I will say this action by the local church doesn't mean that the person is to be despised, like a tax collector. People say, oh, they despise them, so we're to despise these people. No, it means that you just don't socialize with them to give them sympathy. That's the whole point. Um, you still need to put forth efforts to, to that person as you would for any non-member other than being the buddy-buddy with them and doing those kinds of things that may show them uh, a sympathy, a sympathy towards their position and their sin. That's just as dangerous, okay? That's like the, uh, the pendulum swinging the other way, you know? And so this happens all too often, though, um, you know, that, that people will feel 
sorry for them. Um, and, and the entire cause of God is retarded because of that. And many lives will be lost, friends. And I don't mean to sound sensational, but it's true. Um, we as a people are still lacking in having the expressed love of Jesus in our hearts. Or, I'll tell you, this kind of sympathizing with sin would not happen. It just would not happen. Uh, in part two, we, we talked about where a person's behavior as a, a church member may be serious enough to call for an expression of disapproval, but not removal from membership, at least not yet. That disapproval was expressed by a vote of censure. You remember that? They were to be censured. Censure has a twofold purpose again. To enable the church to express its disapproval of a grievous offense that has brought disgrace upon the cause of God and to impress upon the offending member the need to amend their life, uh, to reform their conduct, also to extend to the individual you know, a probation period uh, during which that they may have the opportunity to take the steps necessary to overcome whatever it is that, that may be the offense. Uh, remember, we looked at the biblical account of Miriam, uh, the sister to Moses, as found in Numbers chapter 12. That was an example of this. But there are others. There are others. That if you recall, Miriam was removed for seven days, and she wasn't permanently disfellowshipped. She was censured or put on probation, and it was <laughs> the reason, another reason for that was so that the people of Israel would see that God is serious about sin and that he doesn't show favorites. This was Moses' sister, right? God doesn't show favorites. He's no respecter of persons. And sin is sin, and God deals with sin the exact same way with each and every one of us. Now, a member under censure has no right to participate uh, in the the you know by voice or by vote in the affairs of the church they can't have any participation in public outreach while they're on probation see neither may the individual's membership be transferred to another church again that's one of those hopscopping things i talked about oh i'll just go to a different church that'll be sympathetic towards me um but they're not to be deprived from worshiping on the sabbath day or coming to sabbath school or going to the prayer meeting okay uh because censure is it's an attempt to educate and reconcile uh, the erring one while keeping their stain of sin from the church. Does that make sense? It's like disciplining a child in a sense. You don't throw them out on their, you know, of the house on their first uh, offense, right? You try to educate and take away some things to show them the seriousness of their bad behavior. Um, and, and the other thing that this helps to do is for those people outside who will be watching and believe me if you don't if you don't think that the world is watching Christians then we need to get our head out of the sand the world watches us intently okay so those unbelievers outside what what happens they'll see that the church is serious in dealing with sin and wrongs among their membership and thus they'll know that God's church family has order and they'll know that they're fair and just in their dealings. And this is a direct reflection upon Jesus. See, Now in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. Um, not everything, well, let me put it this way. I can put it a better way. Heaven's ratification of a decision by the church on earth will take place only if the decision is made in harmony with the principles of God that are found in His Word. Does that make sense? There are a lot of churches that are doing a lot of things and making decisions for people's membership that go contrary to the Word of God. And heaven will not sanction that church decision. A lot of that's happening. It happened during the Jews' time when Christ was here. Christ said, if they throw you out of the synagogue, does that mean they're not members anymore? That gets, kind of gets into who and what the church is again, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, that's the only way that uh, heaven will sanction a decision by the church, is if they have followed all the principles of God uh, and made righteous decisions. Now, let's go where we left off the last time. I hope that was a, that was a good review. Uh, kind of gets us up to up to snuff, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, again. And uh, I want to share with you another principle that goes along with the one in Matthew 18. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. So let's go to Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24 is what we're interested in. And let's take a look at that. It says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... Now let me ask you a question right off the bat. Where do you bring... Where is the altar? The altar is in church, isn't it? And isn't that where you bring your gift, your offerings, to church, right? Okay? So, um, of course, now remember Jesus, who's the audience Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. And, and they brought all kinds of different offerings to the sanctuary, right? To the temple. So, Jesus says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and while you're there, you remember that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, here's the principle. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Let's look at some definitions here. The word ought. You know, the word ought. Remember Jesus said, Remember that thy brother, if you remember that thy brother hath ought against thee. The word ought is a Greek word, it's just a small Greek word, tis. It means certain, something, somewhat. You remember that your brother and you, there's, he has something against you. See? And the word reconcile, again, that's Strong's number 1259 for those taking notes. It's the Greek word, dialasso, which means to change thoroughly, conciliate. Okay? Change their mind, is what he's saying. And so Christ insists here that men must make things right with their fellow men before they can be reconciled with God. Now, does that remind you of any scriptures that Jesus, other scriptures Jesus has said to us? What about if you don't forgive your brother, our Father in Heaven won't forgive you? Does that ring a bell? And so... The living out of Christ-like principles in the life is of far greater value, you see, uh, in the sight of God than practicing the forms of religion. He says, leave your offering there and go. It's about relationships, isn't it? In speaking about these verses, I want to share this statement with you. It's from the Ministry of Healing, page 485. This is very interesting. She says, 
do all that lies in your power without the sacrifice of principle, there's the context, to conciliate others. Now, what, what do we hear from Babylon? What do we hear from, from Rome? Pagan Rome, papal Rome, it's been the same since they originated. They don't care about the principle. They just say, hey, let's just conciliate. Have you ever heard, you know, the expression ecumenism? That's what that means. Well, let's just, let's just forget about the things we disagree on and let's come together on the things we agree on. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, we are to do all that lies in our power to conciliate with others, but not without the sacrifice of principle. What principles? Biblical principle. And this goes right along with something else Jesus said that's found in Matthew 22 concerning the paying of tribute taxes to Rome. I could find all kinds of examples of this principle. Remember Jesus said, they came to Jesus and said, oh, what do we do with the temple tax here, the tribute to Caesar? Here's a coin. And Jesus said, well, give me a coin. You know, right? Look at Matthew 22 and verse 21. He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So, conciliate with Caesar without the sacrifice of biblical principle. You see? And so this goes right along with, you know, uh, the fall of last year, you know, in our country, we had voting and stuff. People say, well, how do we react to the government? Well, this plays in, into it as well. Jesus is saying that the Christian is to cooperate with the powers that be because God ordained them. You read about that in Romans 13. But there are certain things in which Caesar or the powers that be have no right to interfere with such as the commands or principles of God. Remember what Peter said in Acts 5. We ought to obey God rather than man. Right? God's jurisdiction is absolute and universal. All others is subordinate and limited. So, do all that lies in your power without the sacrifice of principle to conciliate others. There are a couple other things to consider in regard to these principles that we're reading about in Matthew 5 and, and 18. Um, and I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, kind of the, uh, you know, the tangibles, because people ask me these things. Um, the first deals with the time element that's involved, such as when do you take witnesses with you? Uh, and when do you take it to the church, etc.? The second has to do with how you contact the one who sinned against you. How to start the process, you know, outlined by Christ. So let's look at the time element first. Let's go to Matthew 18.15 again. Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, he says, what's the next word? Go. He says, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. By looking at this, it's seen that the timing of when to go to the erring brother is left up to the individual who's been trespassed against, uh, at least to some degree, right? It's clear, though, that the person who is wronged, and hear me here, is required to tell the brother his fault at some time. 
we fail a lot in this very first step, don't we? You see, Jesus is saying that you can't just forget about it and let it go. You have to go. <laughs> and, and here's why. To not go to your brother just may cause them to continue sinning, and thus they may lose their salvation, or they, not only that, they may lead others to sin, and thus they lose their salvation. Remember what it says, the principle that we find in Ezekiel 33? Look at Ezekiel uh, <coughs> 33 and verse 6. You see, to not go may just put the blood of this person on your hands who neglected their duty in approaching that, that erring brother. Ezekiel 33, 6. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. That's very serious. It's something that the Lord takes very seriously. Okay? So when is the person to be approached? Remember I said, well, you know, they're required to go, but the timing may be up to that person to, to a degree. But now let's go back to Matthew 5, 23 and 24. What did we see about the timing in this? These scriptures. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, this gives us a bit of insight into the timing question, doesn't it? We can see that we're to go to the brother, well, as soon as we possibly can. Um, before we offer our gift to the Lord, or our gift will not be acceptable. Um, you need to get the ball rolling, okay? And this is what the Lord, remember Jesus is, He's wanting us to deal with reconciliation. It's about relationships. So he wants us to step out first. He's not saying, hey, you know, um, stay in church till you offer your gift and everything and then just kind of work it out. He's saying, go, try to mend that relationship. And while you get the ball rolling on that, you can come still worship, you know. But until you go through the steps that I've laid out completely, you know, might be good just to kind of hold on to your offering <laughs> and see where this brother goes. See, and of course, you always do these things uh, prayerfully, you know, and asking the Lord to soften hearts and to help to guide you. Um, considering, now considering that, when Jesus is saying, hey, you come to church, you remember, oh, your brother has ought against you, you need to go and try to reconcile with them. Um, Considering that we, as commandment-keeping people, uh, meet each Sabbath day, it would make sense that these efforts to reconcile need to be done, or at least started, if at all possible, before the Sabbath comes. Does that make sense? <coughs> I think it makes sense. And here, I'll share something with you. This is a Review and Herald article that was entitled, The Value of Christ-like Love, from July... 21st, 1904, notice, says, When difficulties arise among church members, 
let them be cleared away before the Sabbath comes. This should be regarded, notice what she says here, this should be regarded as a Christian duty by every church member. You see, it's not so much the forensics of, oh, it's the Sabbath, I better go make things right. The Sabbath's coming up. It's about uh, um, having that love relationship and compassion for that other person. Okay? And that's at the heart of it. That's at the heart of all these principles anyway. It's the love of God and the compassion of God dwelling in our hearts to make things right with those who have offended us. Or maybe we have offended them. (laughs) And so, the sooner you approach the one who's in sin, who has trespassed against you, the better. And before the Sabbath is the ideal. Okay? Again, remember, we're dealing with principles and every situation is going to be a little bit different. We're all different in some way, right? And so every instance is going to be a little bit different. That's why God teaches us principles and not so much the pure specifics of each case. Imagine how big the Bible would be if God dealt with every single case. We'd have volumes and volumes and volumes. (laughs) It'd be like uh, being a lawyer with man's laws. You know, they have the volumes and volumes of books and judgments and stuff. It'd be crazy. But God deals with principles, principles of righteousness. And so <clears throat> we don't want the, the one who is in sin to, to go to his grave, right, before he's been approached by us, for that could have dire consequences. Here's another thing I want to share with you from the book Desire of Ages, page 441. Christ's instruction as to the treatment of the erring repeats in more specific form the teaching given to Israel through Moses. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, that thou bear not sin for him. That is, if one neglects the duty Christ has enjoined of trying to restore those who are in error and sin, he becomes a partaker in the sin. For evils that we might have checked, here's the principles again, see, for evils that we might have checked, we are just as responsible as if we were guilty of the acts ourselves. And of course, God knows our hearts. He knows what motivates us. And hopefully, He's the one who's motivating us, right? And so, He knows the situation better than we do. He knows the other person's heart. He knows if we're trying to reconcile or not, and, and the, if we have the right motivation or not. And so, He takes all those things into account, see, and prays him that he's a loving God that does that. For if we were to have that responsibility ourselves, the world would be in a much terrible place than it is today. And I would say, let's just imagine, if you were on the verge of losing your eternal life, ignorantly, let's just say ignorantly, and yet there was someone who knew how to help you, but neglected to do it, to do their duty, This is what she's saying. We are responsible. Okay? And let's say you found out about that person knowing and they had the chance to tell you and they didn't. How would you feel about that? (laughs) Right? I don't think you'd feel about that very well. I mean, wouldn't you want that person to speak up and help you? You know. I think we'd be upset that there was someone who could have helped but chose not to. We see that even in the world today. Why didn't that bystander step in and do something? Right? 
The next question in regard to timing is when to step uh, when is step two of Matthew eighteen to be carried out? When is step three? When you know, etc. Well go back to Matthew eighteen and verse sixteen. Matthew eighteen verse sixteen. Remember Jesus, he said, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That there's a record, see. There's a record of the attempts. There's a record of what was said. There's a record by credible witnesses who can testify of it, see. That even that, that person who has trespassed, the, he trusts these witnesses. You know. Uh, or uh, maybe at the beginning he does. It just depends on his reaction, doesn't it? Um, but if the brother will not listen or refuses to listen, we're talking about the timing here, the scripture says, then the next step is to be taken. And considering the scriptures we've already looked at, the next step is to be taken, well, as soon as you, you can, because you want to reconcile that relationship. You know? So, you know, you don't want to be too hasty about it. You need to have time to, to contemplate uh, and, and uh, pray about it, be filled with... Um, you know, the right motivation from God to do these things. Um, you know, you don't want to be too hasty about it, but you don't want to drag your feet either. And uh, you want to do it as quickly as possible as Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. You know, and I want you to notice that the scripture does not say, and I've seen this mistake happen a lot, um, it does not say that we are to keep going alone and trying and trying and trying until the person listens to you. Okay, Like I said before, every situation is a little bit different. And this is why God gives us principles. You know, But you don't just keep going and going and going and going and going if they're refusing and refusing and refusing. Jesus said if they refuse to hear, then you take the next step. You need to get witnesses. Now... Again, let me emphasize a bit. You can try a few times on your own, depending upon circumstances again and such, but let the Holy Spirit lead you, and it'll become evident when to move forward with the next step. The Holy Spirit will definitely let you know. If you just keep pounding away, you know, at the person, they may just slam the door to anything to do with you or even the church. Okay? So we need to follow the principles that God has given us here. Uh, using common sense reasoning, that's a biblical principle, and following the dictates of the Holy Spirit and the principles that Jesus has told us. You know, the same is true if he refuses to hear you with witnesses. You don't keep trying and trying and trying with witnesses until he listens, because he may never listen. And the same, you know, if he refuses to hear the church, you don't keep trying and trying and trying until he listens, because he... he you know, there's going to be a point where it's very evident that they're not going to listen. Okay? And then you take the next step. Matthew 18, 17. If he shall, um, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Um, the sooner this is carried out, uh, friends, the sooner the erring person can be saved from their sin, or the sooner the sin may be removed from, you know, the church, 
and God can again bless the church as we saw in the example of Miriam when she was censured. Uh, you know, I've been asked before if it's possible to move too quickly or is it possible to move too slowly? Well, you know, I don't believe so if this process is carried out by faith exactly as it's laid out by the Lord. Like I said, every situation is going to be different. Um, but we have the principles. And so prayer, 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 allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and then carry out by faith the principles that Jesus has told us. It is always possible to move too fast or too slow if one is not listening to or obeying the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? So the first thing we got to do, as James says, remember James said in uh, James 4, 7, is we need to submit ourselves to God and obey God and let the Holy Spirit lead. Jesus gave us this process, and the reason he, there are a number of reasons why, uh, but uh, it's set up to protect all parties involved. It guards against a leader taking matters into his own hands to remove a person uh, you know, from membership unjustly, because the final decision falls upon the church, not upon the leader. Now, having said that, let me tell you, a corrupt church will do corruption. <laughs> and one reason a church is corrupt is because sin in the, uh, in the church was not dealt with as the Lord commanded that it should be. But, uh, you know, following this process protects the erring person in that they have an opportunity to plead their case. Just like a, a trial in the world. You have a prosecution and you have a defense and you have a jury, and you, at least in our country, the United States, you know, so they have an opportunity to plead their case. And if they don't take the opportunity, then they are not, as Jesus said, hearing the brother. They're not hearing the witnesses. They're not hearing the church. And if they refuse to hear the church, the prophet says in a letter, well, it's also in a Bible commentary, she says to retain them would be an insult to the God of heaven. That's pretty strong language right there. Now, let me stress this point. Because, again, we kind of get mixed up on some of these things. Um, if a person has been removed from membership, then different principles are to be followed to reconcile them back. Remember, Jesus said that they are, they are to be treated as a heathen man and a publican. That means they're to be treated as someone who is an unbeliever, someone who is uh, unconverted, and as a publican means you're not to associate with them as if they're your best friend. You, you, need to, you need to be careful not to sympathize with their position and, and their uh, rejection and disobedience. See, because that's just as dangerous not only to you but the rest of the church. See, And so there is to be no fellowship with them other than to help them see their need of repentance, to draw them to Christ and, and back to his law, like you would an unbeliever. Okay? And so we've got to be careful, friends, not to sympathize with their condition. Because I'll tell you what, and I've seen it and I've experienced it. It'll make it near impossible to convince them of their wrong course. And if you can't do that, well, the likelihood of them repenting becomes remote. Again, in my experience, this part, this seems to be the hardest part 
for other members to, to hold to when dealing with a brother or sister who's in sin and has been disfellowshipped. They'll feel sorry for them. Okay? And they'll show sympathy to them, and that makes matters worse. It doesn't make it better. Um, let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 213. Many souls have been destroyed by their brethren, unwisely sympathizing with them, when their only hope was to be left to see and realize the full extent of their wrongs. False sympathizers have worked in direct opposition. Get this. They've worked in direct opposition to the mind of Christ and ministering angels. Beloved, we have to see sin as God sees sin. We have to realize what sin costs God. What it costs. We cannot sympathize with it. It crucified Christ. Always remember this. In dealing with sin, if we sympathize, we sanction. Does that make sense? If we sympathize with sin, we sanction sin. And Jesus dies. I'll tell you what, I remember that. It, it helps me a lot. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we aren't to be compassionate towards them, but we cannot sympathize with their conduct and their refusal to, to repent. To remain separate, because this is what we're talking about, to remain separate also applies to the person's family members as well, if they have sided with the erring one. The Bible has a lot of examples of that. Remember the example of Achan and Korah? Let's go to Joshua 7, verses 24 to 25. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent. I think we're getting the picture here, aren't we? Everything they had to do with him. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire, and they had stoned them with sto after they had stoned them with stones. Now let me tell you something, friends. Achan died because of his unrepentant sin. He didn't die because Joshua had something against him. He didn't die because all Israel just didn't like him. Achan died because of his choice. His choice was not to repent of his sin. His family perished with him because they chose to stand with their husband, with their father, even though he was wrong and unrepentant, showing that their choice was to sympathize with his sin. Thus they sinned, and they became a partaker of his sins. Let's look at number 16. Two verses in number 16. Verse 27. 
So they got up from the tabernacle. Now, again, this is about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. Look at verse 32. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah. That means all the men, the people who sympathized with Korah and then all their goods. So everything again. Korah died because of his choice of sin to continue to sin. He died because of his unrepentant sin. By the way, that's the um, that's the sin that uh, grieves away the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can't work on your heart anymore. That's the unpardonable sin. An unpardonable sin is a sin that you will not repent of. That's what it is, in a nutshell. So Korah died of his unrepentant sin, his family, as well as those of Dathan and Abiram and their families, died because they sided with their husband, they sided with their father, they sympathized with them, so they sided with them in their sin, thus partaking of the, the same sin. And let me tell you, this wasn't an arbitrary act of punishment upon the rest of the family. Some people say, well, why? Why the wife? And it? They weren't. They weren't pure as the wind-driven snow. They were unrepentant as well. Each one made a choice, just like we all have a choice to make. But you know what gives me a bit of hope is, and what also shows that we all have a choice, no matter how strong the ties of family are, not all of Korah's children died because not all of them sided with Korah and they were spared. You see, they repented and came back to the Lord. Numbers 26 and verse 11. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Now, of course, you know, I encourage you to study all that um, on your own. I'm just giving you kind of the, the nutshell of it. You know? And so this is important. I mean, family ties are very, very strong. And so the... Well, let me ask you this. Do you not think that the devil knows how strong family ties are? And do you not think that the devil will use that against you in order to be obedient to God? Of course he does. But what did Jesus say about it? Look at Matthew 10, verses 37 and 38. Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross, see, and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Pretty serious thing. Sin and unrepentant sin, isn't it? The sin issue, it's very important. It's very, very important. God, You think God takes it seriously? Of course he does. Now another question to consider has to do with how you contact the erring one. And here the scriptures seem to, they really leave it up to the individual who's been wronged. And while I believe that the meeting eye to eye is the ideal, you know, because if you text or you send a letter, sometimes, you know, and we see it in our uh, uh, 
you know the the social uh, yeah the social media today it's all about texting and different things like that and people can misconstrue a printed word <laughs> okay so eye to eye is the ideal but I don't believe that 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 it's a biblical requirement uh, the idea really is to contact the person in some way and not neglect you know to do it you know the apostles sent letters of rebuke to the churches right uh, today we can use letters the telephone video email social media I mean there are different ways it may be somebody who's you know not close enough for you to travel to you know so God leaves he deals with the principles again and he leaves that up to us and and how the Holy Spirit guides us to do that um, you see friends it isn't the method of communication per se but the principle that needs to be the focus and whether the principle is being adhered to has the erring one been contacted in some way um, and once they have you know, whether in person, by letter, by email, by phone, whatever, you know, social media. And, and, you, and you know that they have, in the case of mail, <laughs> you know that they've been contacted. Well, the process of this, the process of this uh, reconciliation has begun. And I want to stress again that these principles are used for church members, and they begin with the individuals first. Let's not lose sight of that. And let's not gossip about it and talk to other people about it until that step's taken. And then you move step by step as Jesus had outlined. Um, an interesting question last week and made me think about this. But if a stranger or someone, let's say, on the Internet has sinned against you, then you do what you can, you know, you do what you can do to reconcile, but unless they belong to your church or your denomination, there isn't much else you can do past that. You know, there's no authority above them that they will see that can, that you can go past that. So you try to reconcile, and then you know you you pray for them, you leave them to Christ. You know, Jesus will work on their heart. Let the Holy Spirit do His appointed work. Amen, brethren. Now, when it comes to those who, you know, teach error about sin, uh, or any error, you know, biblical error, let's remember this statement. It's found in Desire of Ages, page 498. I always remember this. Because I've been criticized before <laughs> by, by some of these things, and I bring this up to, to those who have criticized me. Uh, she says here in Desire of Ages, page 498, she says the best way to deal with error is to present truth. I don't, it's not up to us, friends, to get down and waller around in the mud with the pigs to try to convince somebody of something, you know. We got to be careful of the devil's rabbits chasing them and getting down in the mud. The best way to deal with error is to present the truth. It is the revelation of God's love that makes manifest the deformity and sin of the heart centered in self. Memorize that. Remember that. The devil's going to tempt us to get down into the, the quagmire and get into the weeds and you know rummage around in the mud. We don't need to do that. We just need to, to be motivated by the love of God to have that love of God in our hearts, that's the only way we could be motivated by it, 
and to present the truth. Now, some may look at these principles as being too harsh. Um, but we need to consider that Jesus commanded this procedure, didn't he? And he commanded they be carried out when the circumstances call for it. We must remember, too, that the ultimate goal, again, I want to encourage you, I want you to understand this, the ultimate goal is to have reconciliation. It's to have unity among members of the church and protect the church from division. And following these principles will help to ensure just that. And may also show the erring one their true spiritual condition, and thus you may be able to snatch a soul from the fire. So these counsels are in reality principles of compassion, aren't they? And what we've looked at are, you know, the checks and balances, you could say, uh, that God has laid out in dealing with the sin issue between individuals, and it can even go into the family and in the church. And, beloved, there's a reason why these different circumstances are to be handled differently, and it has to do with keeping potential damages to the church and the people involved to a minimum so that our witness and their chances at eternal life will not be destroyed. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, the the world is watching God's people. They watch us to see how we react to sin. They watch us to see how we react to temptation, how we react to those who of our own family of faith are, are erring and sinning. How are we going to react? Actually, the Apostles, page 550. Unbelievers are watching to see if the faith of professed Christians is exerting a sanctifying influence upon their lives, and they are quick to discern the defects in character, the inconsistencies in action. I think we all, as Christians have seen this. <laughs> you slip up one time and boy, people come out of the woodwork, it seems, that you never knew were there. And so if we wish to reach the world with the truth as it is in Jesus, then we must be consistent, become more and more consistent in living the truth. We must be consistent in dealing with sin within the church. And again, this is a part of, of proper church order. You know, the church was organized for service. And it becomes impossible to serve others if sin is allowed to remain unchecked. The only service that will be done then will be service to self. Selfishness. And so let's not make a mistake in, in, in any of these things. The world is watching God's professed people. And when sin is not called by its right name in the church and dealt with as it's supposed to be, as Jesus laid out, then we make a mockery of our profession, friends. We bring reproach upon ourselves. We bring reproach upon the cause of God. The world will see the church then as a, a den of hypocrites, having no power of a changed life as a testimony to God's power to save us. And so, friends, I want to ask you, does your heart ache because there's sin in the church of God? Do you wish for it to stop? Well, the first thing that must be realized is that the cleansing of sin from the church has to start with each one of us first. That's where it begins. We must give ourselves fully to Christ and have Him cleanse us from all defilement. He's promised to do that. And if sin is to be removed from the church, it has to begin with us because we are the church, right? 
In 1 John 6, or excuse me, 1 John 1, verse 6 to 9, we read, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. That's a promise. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And one of my favorite verses, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. That's Jesus. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the first thing we need to do, friends. Second, we need to ask for the grace of Jesus to call sin by its right name and then use God's principles as described in his word to deal with sin. And if we do this, God's frown will be removed from us as a people and as a church. And I think we would see such a revival of godliness that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years, if not thousands, since the time of the apostles. Now, a very important question I want to ask you to consider before we close this morning. What should you do if sin has been dealt with by you? You followed these principles. You've gone exactly as Jesus has said we should do. As he lays out. And yet the leaders, the individuals, or even the church corpus, the church body, does not do as Christ said. And there is no attempt at reconciliation and removal of sin. What do you do? Maybe the person, leaders or church, Maybe they even turn and accuse you of being a troubler of Israel. A rebel. What do you do? And friends, I'll tell you, that's actually where we find ourselves, a lot of us, God's church, we find ourselves today with the professed church of God. I want to share with something with you I want you to always remember. Always remember what Paul said to Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. So what Paul said about the true church of God. He said, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Friends, you can rest assured. If this happens to you, you find yourself in this situation, you can rest assured that if you're following the truth of Jesus and continue to follow it, well, friends, you're a member of God's church. You may not be organized. You may not belong to an organization because maybe of circumstances or because the organizations are in a fallen condition. But you are numbered with the redeemed in Christ. And never forget that. Never. And the next time we get together, I'm going to speak to, to some of these questions in more detail. But what to do when you have done all you can do in following God's word and in dealing with sin in the church and there's maybe inaction or there's, there's no repentance. And in a lot more cases today, action is against you for standing on the principles and in obedience to the law of God. But think about this scripture before we have prayer. Think about this scripture, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. And will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters. Saith the Lord Almighty.
there's a wonderful promise there. God will never forsake us if we are faithful friends. Let's be faithful. Amen? Let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much again for your holy word, for the principles it contains, the principles of righteousness, the principles of love and compassion that have their source in thee. We pray, Father, that you will fill our hearts, change our hearts and fill them with this this love and compassion for each other, that we may have a love for others that Jesus has for us. Thus the world will know that we are his disciples. Father, continue to bless us, please, today on this Holy Sabbath day, as you have promised, not because we're worthy in any way. We aren't. But you've promised it, and we claim that promise. We need your blessings, and that we may witness to our families, to our neighbors, and the world that Jesus is alive, and you can be changed to be like him. We thank you again for our Lord and Savior, for the most precious gift. We thank you for hearing our prayer. We ask it in the name of Jesus, for he is worthy. Amen.